Well, that was fast. Hey, good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending where you are in the world, when you are watching this on YouTube or Vimeo or listening to the audio podcast version on your favourite podcast platform. I'm about to introduce you to the gentleman who you can see on the other side of the screen if you're on the video section. Uh, some of you may recognise him already. If you don't, let me tell you. He has a couple of things in common with me. One is that he comes from a show business family. Um, his father, um, if, if you're involved in magic, you will most definitely have heard of his dad, George Sands. If you're not involved in magic, let me tell you, his dad is incredibly well regarded in the world of magicians. I don't mean devil worshipping magic, I mean conjuring magic, fun, entertainment magic, and particularly well known for a routine with a piece of rope. And the chances are, if you ever see a magician doing uh, tricks with a piece of rope where they cut it, restore it, then it all becomes one solid loop, that in particular, and a whole bunch of other little bits like that. The chances are they got ideas from uh, this gentleman's dad, George Sands, a routine called Sensational Rope Routine. But we'll talk a bit more about that later. He's more known these days, Law, uh, as a comedy stage hypnotist. And uh, conveniently, he's got a great marketing angle of being known as the Sandman, much like the uh, song Sandman, Come From Your Dreams, or whatever the words are. But it's not just a ploy, because his name is actually Sand, just like his dad. Please welcome to the show... Comedy hypnotist extraordinaire and magician, Alan Sands, all the way from America. How are you doing, sir? Yay! I applaud for myself. Uh, <laughs> doing great, doing wonderful. <laughs> Life's well, good. To get started, for people who've not perhaps come across your work before on the internet, before we get into, you know, how you could perhaps help them uh, improve in certain areas and stuff. How did you get? I've already alluded to the fact that you come from a show business family, but how did you get to where you are? Because your dad was mainly a magician, although he did do stage hypnosis as well, didn't he? Um, yeah, he did. Uh, he, he played with hypnosis in World War II, and then he really did not emphasize it in his life too much. He really went for the magic and the puppetry and the balloon side of the career, uh, doing a variety show. And then we moved to the Catskill Mountains, which is a resort area in upstate New York when I was 12. And because he was performing regularly at the hotels in the region at the time. And then he began, as he got older, he wanted to get a steady job just to get his social security, which is his retirement benefits from the government. As you give money in, they give it back. Yeah. And he got jobs as an activities director and social host at the hotels, like you would be a cruise director. And he began when it would rain or the weather was inclement and people couldn't be outside around the hotel. He began developing other routines that he could entertain the guests with. So he started doing card cheating exposés, challenge me, at making any balloon animal you mentioned. Uh, and one of the things he started developing was his hypnosis show again. So I had this influence of watching him do all these different facets whether it was playing trivia, whether it was, you know, doing magic, uh, different types of magic as he would do cards or he would do um, his regular routine, you know, his regular show. And I really just watched him uh, throughout my high school years. And then my senior year of high school, 
I moved to California from New York across uh-huh. the country, and I began playing with hypnosis at parties because I was in the drama department. And when we were taking breaks uh, during high school plays, rehearsals, I was able to hypnotize some of the other students in my class. And I actually got afraid because I knew I didn't really know what I was doing. I had never taken any classes. Nobody had ever given me any instructions. I wasn't aware of ab reactions. And so were so, you just literally kind of copying what you'd seen your dad do? Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Uh, very, very close. Although the routines that I would do, um, you know, were be, we'd be at a party and I would tell somebody that the world's greatest ping pong player and you would watch the frustration because they couldn't hit the ball any better um, under hypnosis than they could when they weren't hypnotized, of course. Uh, it wasn't like they were meeting some magic potential. Uh, they were only meeting their potential, which yeah. wasn't very good. And uh, and then I also discovered that I would give them a keyword so that they would go back into trance very easily and quickly uh, in the future. And my keyword, I think, was umbrella. And one of the other kids that was in my class with me was able to say umbrella and put them into hypnosis. And that kind of scared me. So I I knew some very vague Hebrew words. I was the world's worst Hebrew student. Um, I had to read everything phonetically. But I then made my keyword a hip, you know, a, a Hebrew word, and that kept him from being able to put people under. But um, anyway, I played with it in high school. I ended up doing one show for my drama department, mm-hmm. and. Then I decided I really didn't know what I was doing. So I kind of avoided it for the next 15 years. Uh, Really, a big turning point was I went to South Africa and I was performing with two other Americans called Laugh America. It was a show in 1992, right after apartheid was lifted. And we were possibly, I really believe, we were the first American entertainers to go there. Uh, to South Africa immediately after apartheid was lifted. And the three of us did this show together. One of them was a puppeteer, one of them was a juggler, and I did Magic and Balloons, and I was the MC. And our puppeteer, Bob Hartman, amazing puppeteer, uh, very funny, uh, did voice impersonations, used to hobnob personally with Robin Williams uh, because Robin Williams loved his voice impersonations and his comedy. And also Frank Oz, of Muppets loved his amazing puppetry because Bob would work, you know, like many puppeteers would spend hundreds of hours building a puppet. And anyway, the three of us were in South Africa. Bob was developing his hypnosis show. So after we did our two and a half hour theater show with our variety acts, I would come out as the MC and tell people if they wanted to stick around, Bob was going to do a hypnosis show and he would have small audiences and I would stand in the back of the room and I would watch him fail miserably. And I realized watching him fail, he he would have some successes. Um, We were there for three months. Uh, But watching him fail, I realized I could also fail. And it was okay. It empowered me to go back home and immediately began developing my hypnosis show. And I wasn't, failing is hard, no matter what. But knowing that I could see him fail 
and watch him fail empowered me to be able to do bad shows and learn from it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they say the greatest scientists that invent things failed more than anyone that didn't fail. Yeah. And the same thing happened with me in my hypnosis show. And I was doing free shows at first for Stanford University for their rush parties, which is when they recruit uh, people to join their fraternities. And every spring, right around Easter time, they would have these rush parties. And I, the first year, offered them for free. The second year, I offered them for $100 just to compensate myself for gas, parking, and dragging a sound system and setting yeah. it up. I did have sound systems already. And then I think the third year, I started charging $400. And I incrementally built my you know, price back up to where, you know, it was competitive. And by the fifth year, I was doing considerable a number of shows. And I had also already been in the county fair market. So I began sneaking hypnosis shows in instead of doing my comedy magic show. And I would keep the magic show set up backstage knowing that if my, because I was being paid to be there, knowing that if my show went poorly, I could grab the magic act, pull it out, go right into the magic show. And I, boy, for like five or more years, I always carried my magic act with me, ready to go. Would you, with hindsight now, I understand why that would be a great kind of seed in your mind that I'm being paid to be, I've got to do a show and I've got the magic show ready if need be. Um, but for people who are perhaps thinking about starting out, do you think if they do have magic as a skill already that it's a good idea to have a standby show that, that they might get too used to it as a crutch? At least a standby routine. So there were times when my show would be flat, meaning everyone went into somnambulism and they sat there and they really didn't animate very much and it wasn't that entertaining. And I would wrap up the show and then I would do the finale to my magic show, which was a six minute comedy routine with Halloween masks. And right. it's not magic at all. It was just a comedy routine and it at least left the audience laughing at the end. Um, you know, right now I'm actually reading Maximum Entertainment by Ken Weber. Yeah, uh, excellent. One of the things that he says is don't do multiple finales. Do a finale that brings them to their height of laughing or wow or, you know, you're going to bring them to that height of um, excitement and leave them with that. Don't do a second or a third big finale. It's an interesting one. It's an excellent book, uh, but there's a few things in it that uh, I blatantly disagree with, and a lot of top performers do. And that's one of them, actually. If you look at all the greatest performers in history, and his book isn't just about magicians and mentalists, is it? It's also about, he mentioned singers and look at other performers. Sure. You look at your big names, they all do false tabs, which for people at home who don't know is they purposely make it look like it's the end of the act. They get the massive, and they end up getting called back by the compare or the voiceover because they've been convinced to do another song or one more routine. Right. And, encore, you know, the encore. Yeah, it's, I mean, all them, 
all areas of show business, all the major big names have do do still do that. Sure. And possibly our post-hypnotic suggestions yeah. serve that purpose in a hypnosis show where you've sent everyone back to their seat and you're saying goodbye and thank you for coming. And I, uh, you know, really believe in hypnosis and somebody jumps up in the audience and starts animating because you said the word hypnosis or, you know, whatever else you do is your post-hypnotics. And those become your own encore um, performance of your show, uh, making it more personable. Yeah, I, you know, there's rules. <laughs> I don't believe in rules. I mean, I, I believe that there are rules to guide you, but all rules can be broken. So absolutely. Um, I, I think in a show where you're failing and you have something that's going to bump it up, they're not going to want you to do an encore. They're just going to want to feel that high of a success at that moment. So I've got to play devil's advocate here and ask you to clarify for the people who are listening or watching what you mean by failing. Because, you know, even to this day, I'll have the odd show that I go home afterwards or I go back, you know, walk off stage afterwards. And I think that was absolutely teeth pullingly, boringly bad. And then I'm, someone will catch me as I'm loading the car up to try and get away without being noticed and go, hey, it was a wonderful show. And they're like, I'm thinking, were you in the same room as me? Yeah, no, I, I think we all have that. And even a show filled with sonambulism where they're barely moving, where they're only doing idiomotors uh, to kind of react to it, uh, will feel like that's a terrible show. And oftentimes people are amazed that you... Even just kept them sitting there quietly. <laughs> or, you know, you might have had one or two little successful routines. Yeah. I remember way back when I started that there was somebody that sat there in sonambulism through the entire show. And I left him with a post-hypnotic suggestion that he was Michael Jackson. And then when I played the Michael Jackson music, he got up and did that post-hypnotic dance and song. And it was like everyone in the audience was like amazed because he didn't do anything the entire show. He's just a co such a massive contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those can oftentimes be the most fun for us as performers also, is bringing somebody out of that shell or, you know, when we laugh and it's natural because we enjoyed something that happened. Uh, now, people who, who, who watch and listen to Hypnosis Week know that, I always say that underneath the video or the audio podcast, you look below, you'll see links and you direct you directly to alansands.com and also to Alan's YouTube channel and his other channels so you can get in touch with him. And uh, whether it's hypnosis or magic or both that you're interested in, his products are all on his websites, including DVDs of his past shows, which are great both to entertain yourself and also to watch, observe and study. But there's also the magic stuff from his dad on the Bottom line is go and have a look. And I normally leave that till the end of the podcast so that the podcast is not sounding like it's an advert. So I'm just stressing to viewers here that this is going to sound like uh, I'm doing some kind of infomercial for Alan in a minute. I'm not. It's just I want, I have to ask him about something that he does because the way he does it is different to the vast majority of people. And that is... Uh, potentially a major benefit to you and to put it in context if I myself was starting out I would be highly tempted 
to book a plane ticket and go to the States and book on what we're going to talk about, which is Alan's stage hypnosis boot camp. Not so much from the point of view of learning the stage hypnosis, although you would do, and I'll let Alan tell you how you'd learn it in a minute. But because you wouldn't just be learning stage hypnosis, you'd be walking away with almost a ready-made business package. Uh, the things that are more important, like ready-made promotional video footage, photos, and the stuff that actually, I would argue, is more important than actually being able to hypnotise. Because if you don't look professional in the first place, they're not going to come along in the right state of mind. So with that in mind, I'd like, Alan, if you could, to please... I'm not asking this in a say, you know, give us a sales pitch kind of way, although that will naturally work itself in. But why did you put it together like this? Because I, I mean, obviously, I can see the benefits but for viewers and listeners. Why do you do it? How do you do it? What is it that people would get if they signed up on your stage hypnosis bootcamp? Okay, so in 2013, I did my first bootcamp. And leading up to 2013, there was a fair, a county fair, um, agricultural fair in North Carolina that I was doing for uh, probably already 10 years at that point. And there the people went deep into hypnosis real quickly. Uh, sometimes I would do a little short meditation at the beginning of my induction just to calm people down and let them center themselves. And it was just having them close their eyes, focus on their breathing, and let their mind go clear. I wouldn't even explain to them. At first, I explained to them that this was meditation, and now we're going to learn the difference. But then I, someone criticized me and said, boring, nobody cares, just do the show. And so I would do the meditation part of it without explaining to them what they were doing. And many of them would drop out just into hypnosis immediately. Uh, others were extremely animated and it was easy to do shows there. I still do that county fair every year. Uh -huh. I've been doing it for 17 years. And I realized that it was the perfect place to teach someone learning hypnosis for the first time because the success rate would be so high and having good success at the beginning is empowering. It just makes you go, yeah, I can do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I did my, oops, sorry. Uh, right. I did my very first, um, boot camps there where I invited a couple of people. I want to turn off my phone just so that it doesn't make lots of noise in the background. I get news updates and, uh, it's such exciting news here in the U S right now. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going there though. That's not part of this podcast. Anyway, um, Anyway, so I did my very first boot camp there, and I actually invited two people who wanted to learn stage hypnosis and further their skill set for free. Like I said, yeah. at the beginning of my learning how to do hypnosis, I do everything for free. And I had them come, and they did really well. I was, like, frustrated because I really didn't have a structure to what I was doing yet. And... One of them, though, one of the two people, Dr. Dan, was a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist. He actually taught at a university and he had a private practice. And afterwards, he said, this is brilliant. You need to keep doing this. And it was like, really? Because I'm not feeling it. But he said, oh, yeah, no, you're, you're developing something here that's second to 
nothing else available out there. And I said, okay. Um, so I continued doing it. And I've now run about 12 or 13 of these boot camps since 2013. There were some years when I had multiple sessions. Other years, I would have like seven people at one boot camp. I really uh -huh. limited to seven people because what I've learned is that the only way to learn stage hypnosis, we can watch your videos. And I do get a lot of students that have bought your entire package. Um, they read books. They even are clinical hypnotherapists. But getting on stage and doing a four to six minute induction and doing a pre-talk and inviting people on stage and giving the people on stage instructions on how they're supposed to behave and not wake up the people around them and not just walk off the stage if they feel like it and, you know, stay the distance, go the distance, then doing routines that have continuity and flow from one routine to the next or learning how to tell a story that holds the whole thing together or if you want to do a punch, you know, a boxing match, as one of uh, the Las Vegas performers calls his show, he calls his a boxing match where it's like routine, 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 mm -hmm. uh, short and powerful. And then learning how to wake them up so that they don't have, you know, headaches and sending them back to their seats and possibly doing post-hypnotics uh, afterwards. Learning each one of these stages, the only way to do it is to get on stage. So I bring people to a county fair where I get permission from the fair. In many cases, I don't even do shows at that fair. My students are the ones that are doing the shows back to back as quickly as we can gather a new, fresh audience of people that have never been hypnotized. Because yes, if you go to one of these clinical classes where you, um, not clinical classes, if you go to one of these stage hypnosis classes where 10, 20, 30 students sit in a ballroom at a hotel and someone gets up there and lectures to you and teaches you the different phases of the show and then you hypnotize each other, everyone is already a hypno junkie. They've already been hypnotized before they came there or you're hypnotizing them over and over again. Well, it's bullshit anyway, isn't it? Because let's face it, they paid money to be there so that they're just going to play along anyway because they don't want to upset the person who's doing it on them because they don't want to feel daft and get that person's back up will then not play along with them when it's their turn. The dynamics are such that it, you're not learning anything. Or they're synobulists and they go in no matter what. I mean, yeah, you go one you know, of the two. Yeah. rainbow, sleep, deeper, five, four, three, going deeper, relax every muscle, you're out. <laughs> and they're out. And you, you don't know. learn anything from, exactly. Right. So giving them a fresh audience of what I call virgins walking around a fairgrounds that have never been hypnotized before. Now, we have one advantage here in the U.S. that you don't have in England, and that is we're allowed to hypnotize children. There's no laws here that protect people under the age of 18, whereas in England, you have that stipulation in your um, rule, what's it called? Rule 1952, of 50. it is about, yeah. Yeah, and therefore, when I'm at a county fair... I do, I try to, I don't make anyone do anything specifically. I don't have any laws that you can't break. 
other than using profanity, because we're at a uh, family event and they'll shut us down if yeah. you're using profanity at a county fair. But as far as what age you can invite on stage, um, normally when I'm doing a show, I try and limit it to people that are 12 and over because I figure 12 year olds have already been infatuated and they've already lost a dog in their life and they feel emotion and they've had all those life experiences that you can play with um, when you're doing your hypnosis show. But I don't make that a hard, fast law. So when my students come, they can invite anyone they want on stage. And they can do a Justin Trance induction if they want to, where they lay them all over the ground. Um, I don't encourage that. I will tell them that I don't like that, the reason I don't like that. But if that's the induction that they want to do, it's a good induction. I mean, it definitely puts people out. I just have a objection to visibility as well as laying people over a, all over a dirty floor, especially at county fair where people are walking through the agricultural area and yeah. who knows what's on their shoes. Although many of my students are really good about mopping the floor before they do the show and such like that. They try and protect them or uh, sometimes I'll try and find a roll of carpet or something that they can put on the stage so that we protect the people a little more. Uh, but I explained to them that so many of the shows I do are for people that are wearing suits and they're wearing gowns or dresses or skirts and you just can't make them lay all over the ground. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'll explain my reasoning. Um, but if that's what they're going to do at the county fair, you know, uh, let them let their child out however they want to, both the volunteers and the hypnotists. Anyway, um, that's kind of it. Overall, I mean, what's great about my boot camp right now is that my girlfriend, Lisa, is also a 35-year veteran clinical hypnotherapist, and she's like an encyclopedia. She reads a book, and she remembers all the words. She has a real strong comprehension of why hypnosis works and how hypnosis works, and she is very insightful when she watches people work where they're using negatives and saying, now you may not want to go into a deep hypnotic state. She'll get up there and afterwards and say, you don't want to say that, you know, that's a negative and that's giving them permission not to go under. And she's also very insightful in trigger words that I normally didn't catch uh, that, you know, can possibly set off an ab reaction. And if it only happens one every 500 shows, why would you want to use that word if, if you can control it and not use it? So as a quick example of that, when I was doing my clinical training, um, I did my, um, my takeout, you know, when I'm waking them up uh, for the teacher. And my, my takeout was um, in the event of an emergency, you will not. And my teacher said, emergency, bad word. That could be a trigger word. You don't know what an emergency is to someone under hypnosis. Mm. Therefore, I've changed my verbiage to be in the event you need to wake up, you will wake up and, you know, just need to wake up instead of in the event of an emergency. Yeah. That's one quick example of what a trigger word might be. And Lisa's really very insightful and 
has a much better attention span than me, so she can actually listen to everything going on. Uh, whereas I worry about the video and I worry about the audio and I worry about all the technical aspects. I'm not going to ask you to name names, obviously, because that's private and confidential. But at, especially in the context of what I'm going to ask you. Um, now, some people might think I'm asking this from a negative point of view. I'm not, because I can actually see the positive side of the fact that you're there at the side of the stage while the students are doing stuff. Uh, so the question is, has there ever been a moment where you've had to go and step out to kind of save the day? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll give you one example. The gentleman just died from COVID. Um, but one of my students literally walked up on stage, started doing his pre-talk, mature gentleman in his 50s, um, started doing his pre-talk. He was like, I don't know, two minutes into talking to the audience and he blanked out. His mind went clear and, you know, stage fright or just lost his monologue. And he said, I'll be right back. Turned around, walked off stage, and I heard the microphone go plump because he didn't even turn it off. He walked out the back door and went back to his hotel room, just totally flustered by the moment. And I waited a count of, you know, two minutes, jumped up, ran backstage, found the microphone, luckily, and jumped up on stage and just did the show. Uh, and he stayed away from the boot camp for about two days and worked on his monologue in his hotel room for two days on his own and then came back and I crunched him into doing two or three shows a day uh, because his time slots were then available earlier in the week for others to get up there and do their shows multiple times also. And also some people want to leave early. So it was great that they got to do more shows earlier. Uh, another time, someone... So I take went, it that when he got back and he'd had that wobble, and no doubt, knowing you, you gave him a bit of a pep talk behind the scenes as well, perhaps without him even realising it, that he then was able to go out there and he pulled a show off. Yeah, and also yeah. Um, the students, because we're working as a group, <clears throat> one of the magic things, like I explained earlier, watching another hypnotist fail empowered me to get up there and fail and not do strong shows and learn what I needed to learn. That happens at the boot camp. You're watching other people and you go, oh, that was not good or that was negative or they're having a tough time and I can do better or it's OK for me to have a tough time. and get through this and um so and in another example um one of my better students he had never done a show before he came to boot camp he had never put anyone into hypnosis before he came to boot camp he had studied your cds as well as uh, your dvds as well as he had studied other books and been a lover of hypnosis he didn't do any clinical work at all and he came to the boot camp we had to take him off to the side and make him memorize a induction, uh, which is usually my one requirement that I have when people come to the boot camp is you need to have done an induction. You need to know an induction. But anyway, his last show of the fair, it was 104 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Um, I don't know what that is in centigrade. Uh, 40? <laughs> it's, yeah, 40. it's 40, it's, 42, maybe. Yeah, it, it was hot. I mean, it was stand in the sun and sweat, even, you know, just standing still. And a girl went into somnambulism and she laid down on the bench where we were doing the shows and we went into panic mode. We thought she was having a heat stroke. So we were able to jump in and make sure that she was okay. Uh, a little bit disorienting to the performer, you know, to see someone that's not responding and suddenly lays down in, you know, a fashion that made us uncomfortable as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, one of my ex-students likes to say, Alan brings you to the side of the pier and pushes you in the water and says, swim. And he stands there. And he's there to save you if you, you know, need saving. But otherwise, if you only do the doggy paddle and you really learn how to do the doggy paddle really well, that's okay. You've learned how to get out, how to tread water. Yeah. You've learned how to get through a show. And what I didn't expect when I first started doing the boot camp is how many of my students come back a second time. Uh, they come back a second year, and those are many of my very best students. Uh, in fact, the majority of my very best students are the ones that came back a second time. Because the first time, they got pushed in the water, they learned how to tread water, but they really didn't loosen up enough to learn all the different strokes. When they come back the second time, they will get on stage and say, I'm going to do this show without any music. Or I'm going to get on stage and I've got a bunch of music that I want to work into the show that I didn't do the first year. Or I have this routine that I really want to try and develop. And how does it sound to you? And we'll critique him on his script or her script. And then they get up there and they do it. Or they have a song, a rap song that they get up on stage and they rap their pre-rap, uh, you know, their pre-talk. Do you think some of them also might just come back because um, it would probably cost them practically as much money to get some decent, some more decent video footage and photos? Yeah, sure. Uh, because that's an, a remarkable value that's included in in, in what what you offer. Yeah, I do videotape everything. Um, I'm a videoholic, if you want to call it that. I videotape everything. And I videotape when we're having meetings before the fair uh, to talk about sound. And I give that to them so they can go over the audio board. Because I went to, my college degree was in audio. Uh -huh. And I know analog sound very well. I don't know digital as well. Um, but I teach them how to use a basic audio board. And, you know, the different types of speakers, the different types of microphones, um, you know, and what they want to buy and what they want to acquire as they start putting together equipment and what they don't want to buy. Because it's ridiculous for somebody to go buy a $1,600 or $3,000 camera when they're first starting out. There's no reason for that. Buy a consumer level $300 to $500 camera and wear it out. You know, kill the thing, you know, doing 
600 or 1,000 hours worth of shows and throw it away and then buy yourself a good camera if you're doing enough shows at that point. And people, you know, or buy your first microphone on eBay and, you know, buy a secondhand one that somebody bought, probably another hypnotist who didn't use the thing. And, you know, show me what you're going to buy and I'll tell you whether it's what you want to buy or not. I have no problem giving them all that type of support afterwards. And I also set up multiple different types of speakers so they can hear the dynamics of what an 8-inch speaker versus a 10-inch versus a 12-inch versus a 15-inch speaker sounds like. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, get those type of experiences and they also see how heavy each of those speakers are. So if you're a petite female, there's no reason for you to be buying you know, 12-inch speaker cabinets that weigh 50 pounds each um, where you can barely lift the things and you can't lift them over your head to put them into a tri onto a tripod. And, you know, so I teach them a lot of those type of things as well, and I videotape it all. And, you know, that's one of the things that saved me during COVID, I got to tell you, is I had spindles. <laughs> I had probably a 1,000 DVDs of my shows and I loaded them all onto Vimeo and made them available to people that want to download mm -hmm. and buy entire libraries. And I created subject libraries and I created annual libraries. So if let's say you knew that you graduated from high school in 2018 and you wanted to find your show, you could go to the 2018 library and look for your school, and it was easier to locate. Or if you wanted to do high school shows, you could download the entire library of all of my high school shows that I've done, and you can study or watch um, and get from them what you want to get from them. Uh, you know, so I have three major subject libraries. I've got fairs. And I love just before we jumped on this call. So if you go to alansands.com, there's a drop down menu and under the short bit, there's a section that says Vimeo that you can click on and that'll take you to the, um, what you just mentioned. Yeah, and they can email me and I'll give them a, a list of the different libraries because I also have a bootcamp library. And uh, I think oh, it's cool. Yes. So it's vimeo.com slash alansands. Or no, it's vimeo.com slash on demand slash bootcamp US. But and I'll tell you what, just to be a million percent sure, when we've finished, if before I can, I won't be uploading this till tomorrow because he's got to okay. get the ribs out. If you can Im, uh, email me the definite links, I'll make sure they're below this video and below the audio podcast. Because I think people being able to get hold of a whole bunch of different people's shows um, so that they can see different. Never study just one person when it comes to performing anything. I'm not talking stage yet. I'm talking anything. Because otherwise, there's a chance you might become a clone of that person. Look at at least two or three different contrasting personalities so that you're more likely to end up being yourself rather than... But the goal of being able to go and get a whole bunch of Alan Shows, I would recommend anyone who's... Whether, you're already, you know, whether you've started doing hypnosis shows or you haven't, either way... Go and grab some because and I've to got learn. A, and I gotta say that if you have spindles of DVDs and you put them onto Vimeo, 
you will make back the cost of owning a Vimeo. Um, they, yeah. yeah, they charge me 200 bucks a year or 240. And if you actually email me, I can give you a discount code. So you save 20% or something. Um, but you will make back your money if you put all of your DVDs onto Vimeo and put them out there for the universe. I mean, what are you going to do with them? You know, when you pass away, someone's going to take that spindle and throw it away. Um, and DVD decks are going to go out of style anyway shortly. So is that beer you're drinking at this hour? It is, but you have to remember it's nearly six o'clock in the evening in the United Kingdom. We're on different time zones. No, you're also British, so you drink beer. <laughs> well, there is that. So look, we're getting close to the end, but I just want to—I just want to before I kind of give you the stage to mention or plug anything you want to. And I'm just going to say again to my viewers and listeners, it might have sounded like a big advert this podcast, but could I broken all the rules of what I'd done on the past 73, 74 shows? But it wasn't because it's become an advert for Alan. It's because it's so unique, the context and environment of what Alan offers. You know, I, 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 this sounds terrible, but it, and it contradicts, sounds like it contradicts what I said earlier, but I don't mind making myself look daft. I would not let anyone who was just starting out learning go anywhere close to stepping foot on one of my stages. I just bloody wouldn't. Simple as. And that's not an ego thing. I just wouldn't because so firmly lodged in my head is the cock-ups I made when I was starting out and I wouldn't want that to happen on my watch, so to speak. And yet, having said that, which makes me sound a hypocrite, I wish there'd been something like this when I started out to know there was somebody there like Alan at the side of the stage in case I did make those cock-ups. So make yeah, it up what you will, you know. It's similar to an apprenticeship, but it's, uh, you know, about three people have copied what I'm doing, but none of them have been as successful because they haven't done it 13 times. So we have really honed and got down the you know, the classroom, what we need to teach offstage, what we need to look for in each of our students to make sure that they're moving ahead uh, without making the same mistakes we made. Because, I've yeah. Got, I've got to ask you, because people are thinking, well, it's all well and good. Alan's in America, so great. I'll get an idea of how shows work with American audiences, because Americans are a very different mentality to the English. They, 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 they simply are. I mean, oh, flipping Christ... I couldn't believe how easy it was to do a show in America. It, it, it's it's a hundred times easier than doing a show in England. Is it? Okay. The more, when they step on stage, you don't need an induction. Ninety-nine bit compared to England, doing a, a, a your average English venue. Although I suspect cause that's where I was leading to. I know you've done um, Glastonbury. Right. Uh, I'd say Glastonbury is probably. No, well, I don't know. How, how did you find it in relation to America? A different type of audience. Well, okay, I mean, I, I have this funny little situation with Glastonbury. When it's raining, people come into the tents, they sit down in mass, hundreds of them, and you do these amazing shows. When it's not raining, people are outside enjoying the outside of the events. So if you're in a tent... Your audiences are much smaller and you're also performing in a huge theater 
with very small audiences. I mean, there may be 200 people sitting in an audience, but if there's 800 seats, yeah. it looks like there's no one there. So I've had both sides of the coin um, with Glastonbury, where the first two years I did it, packed audiences, but the mud was up to our knees. And then the second two years I did it, um, the last year they moved my time slot earlier also, and it was beautiful outside. You know, I didn't want to be in the tent, let alone them. So, you know, um, it's hard to say, but really the Glastonbury audiences, they've come there to be entertained. Um, their purpose for being there is to see shows, be in shows, participate and, you know, let their hair down. And, you know, so Glastonbury's may be different than other shows in England. And I haven't done other yeah. shows. I was thinking more of the working men's clubs where really they go there to get drunk, uh, drink beer and play bingo. Well, also they know everyone in the club. And I believe people don't want to let their child out, as I call it, in front of their peers completely. They're not going to completely relax their subconscious mind or their conscious mind and be as free as they you know, might be if they didn't know everybody. Now, so the reason I brought that up is because for anyone in England or certain areas of Europe, definitely England, who, who's wanting to get some confidence and stage time, I would say that's a good enough reason alone rather than trying to initially break yourself in doing free charity shows in England or whatever to bloody book on Alan's boot camp and oh, do it all. Have, I mean. have, have a holiday and go and do the boot camp because... I promise you, from my experience, it will be easier for you when you're starting out to do shows in America, especially with the safety net of having somebody like Alan there at the side of the stage, than it would be going out on your own in a working men's club in England. Um, well, little advantages like good microphones, good sound system, yeah. uh, stages that are safe, um, you know, and those type of things also help. And I do the crowd gathering you know, so that I know that they have an audience that's paying attention and there to see the show. Uh, I was a street performer when I started out as a magician back through college years, and I just know how to bark an audience. I get in trouble for it because some of what I say, <laughs> the fairs don't appreciate, you know, children. So close to winding up. So let's say there's hypnotherapists watching because the stage hypnotist, I think it's self-explanatory what we talked about. The people are already interested in that and they want to go the next step, get to your website, buy DVDs, get in contact with you. The hypnotherapist who have always perhaps had a secret yearning inside that they want to do stage hypnosis, but they haven't even looked at it yet. I know you said earlier before they come on your boot camp, at the very least you like them to have read up or watch video or somehow learn to a stage hypnosis relevant induction induction down is really your learning curve is so much better normally um it's just one facet and what i encourage people to do is actually watch my videos or any other video and transcribe someone else's induction word for word and read it out loud transcribing it helps you listening to it helps you 
just like an actor learning any type of lines. And that, uh, you know, helps someone grow much quicker. You know, their success rate is higher if they have that induction down and can get people under, you know, then you're working on the other facets of the show, you know, how to be an entertainer, how to be a performer. So to bring things together, um, I'm going to leave you with one question. And then as well as answering that, if you've got anything else you'd like to tell viewers or listeners about, please do so as well. And the final question is, what would your, other than the obvious, go to alansands.com and check out your videos and your courses and whatnot. What would your top three tips be to anyone wanting to get into stage hypnosis as a career whether that be a marketing tip or a hypnotic tip or just a state of mind tip what are your top three tips and what else is the you want them to know about before you we bid them farewell so to speak well i wish you'd given me that as a you know <laughs> i wish you had set me up beforehand so i could have thought about that um let's see uh, before I answer your three tips, which will give me a moment to think about yeah. it, first, one of the things you didn't mention that you and I have in common at the beginning was that we both have the same initials, AWS. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good point. Hands and you're Alex William Smith. By so. birth, I am. Although some people watching listening to this will be thinking, well, Alex William Smith. But if you know me on social media, you know because they shut down my Facebook account as Jonathan Royal originally because they said that's not your name by birth. Um, so I had to reopen it. That's why it says Alex William Smith, a.k.a. Jonathan Royal. So, yeah, AW, I actually hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's see, I want to mention HT Live just because it's a fun convention in Las Vegas every year and people come from all over the world. And I mean all over the world. Fingers and crossed. Only, last year, only happens. 200 people showed up, but in the past, 1,000 show up. Mm. And it's perhaps the biggest hypnosis convention going on. The core of the convention is three days, but they have classes beforehand and after, as well as there are at least four working hypnotists in Vegas where you can go see shows. Yeah. And oftentimes you can get discount tickets, or if you talk to people like me, we can probably get you discount tickets to any of them, uh, You know, talk to any of the stage hypnotists. We know each other. Um, everyone knows the ones in Vegas. So HG Live, I want to just uh, plug them. Um, Glastonbury, Vimeo, AWS. Actually, that's pretty much it. Um, three tips. You got any tips, Lisa? <laughs> For getting started? <laughs> My partner is back there. Okay. <laughs> She's hiding behind the scrim. <laughs> You're the first people to see our scrim, by the way. Yay. It's oh, steam. is that? All right. Okay. Is that a virtual one or is it a roller bannery type? Well, it's a big cloth all right lovely excellent two tripods and a hanging piece of cloth anyway you're the first ones to see it we've bought it months ago and haven't really had a reason to set it up or anyway Thanks i've been to COVID. Yeah. yeah um anyway three tips uh you know i'm gonna go with things that they taught us in maximum entertainment and one is try and Boy, it's, uh, you know, there's so many different directions I can go with this. You, you really want to know what you're doing as far as the induction goes. And knowing multiple inductions will help you because if you have a young audience, you might need to talk about rainbows and unicorns. And if you have a more mature audience, 
Um, you know, you might want to talk about bringing them to the beach or bringing them to the forest next to a babbling brook. Um, oh, learn confusion technique, something I did not learn early. And uh, look it up or master it however you need to. But being able to say, and as you lie there, relax next to a babbling brook, or maybe it's a lake or the ocean waves you're listening to, their mind is going, babbling brook, lake, ocean waves. And it's a confusion technique that really helped my induction exponentially. Um, learn how to tell stories. I, I'm a big believer in learning stories, and you can make them personal. Um, you know, when I talk about how cold it is when I'm doing my hot cold routine, I imagine myself in Winnipeg, Winnipeg, Canada, where it was 20 below with a wind chill factor of 50 below Fahrenheit. So 50 below is 50 below. 40, negative 44 is negative 44. It's bloody and, cold. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, it's where you could die from exposure. Um, and I imagine myself back in Winnipeg in my mind. And so I'm playing from my own life experiences or when I'm telling them that it's hot. Number one, I limit the hot. I, you know, make sure that they know that they're sitting next to a beautiful fireplace <clears throat> or there's a propane heater in the room and it's breathing on them and it's only this temperature. Don't, um, I've had more ab reactions from people that have either witnessed their house burning down or been in a house fire. Oh. And therefore I'm very safety conscious of not letting the hot routine be blazing hot. Bad idea. Trigger word. Um, and the third one that I learned late on is how to prevent people from falling off the stage. Every time someone stands up, you repeat to them, keep your eyes open. You know where the edge of the stage is. You will not fall off the edge of the stage. It never fits your pattern, but you are making sure that people don't fall off the edge of the stage. In Great Britain, they have the law that you have to have either a white line or a yellow yeah. line that borders the edge of the stage. In the U.S., you don't. And I probably had a dozen people fall off the edge of the stage. And some of these stages were high-rise at county fairs, you know, four feet off the ground or something. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is, is that pounding it into them, you know, if you stand up, when you stand up, every time you stand up, you will open your eyes. And when I'm doing the pre-talk, when I first invite the volunteers on stage, I very openly say, hey, everybody, um, you know, everybody close your eyes. Everybody open your eyes. I'm making sure you're paying attention to me. Excellent. Everyone see the edge of the stage? That's called the edge of the stage. If you step over the edge of the stage, you will fall off the edge of the stage. So now that I've called that to your attention, your subconscious mind is going to protect you and you're not going to fall off the edge of the stage. Wonderful. Everybody close your eyes. <laughs> And I really uh, emphasize that for safety because, um, you know, that was probably the biggest close to injuring anyone that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, That's so, gold. Thank yeah. you, sir. Absolute gold. And indeed, for anyone who's been watching and listening, I always say this, but it's particularly relevant with this one. Get a pad and a pen. 
watch again from the beginning or listen again from the beginning and take notes. Because like I said earlier on, this wasn't an infomercial. We've within there, there has been wisdom and nuggets of advice that have been hard earned in the real world of performing show after show, day after day in the bloody real world for years. I'm not trying to make you feel old, Alan. I'm just saying it as it is. I mean, just as simple as falling off the stage. I've had a dozen people over the years, 25 years I've been doing it, I've had a dozen people fall off the edge of the stage. And to me, that's the, the scariest thing that can happen. And that's where apprenticing or going to the boot camp or watching other people's videos and transcribing what they're saying word for word and trying to absorb it as best you can uh, makes a world of difference. Makes a huge world of difference. Don't just watch the videos. Transcribe them out and uh you know learn it thank you very much indeed everyone for tuning in thank you for your time alan everyone remember right below this video or below this audio speaker image on your favorite podcast channel will be the links to uh, vimeo which alan's going to email me overnight so that I've definitely got the right ones there and also of course the links to alansands.com and his various social media channels thank you very much indeed alan Bye. Bye, everyone.